This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by John Carlin, president of River Partners, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation whose mission is to create wildlife habitat for the benefit of people and the environment. With a fellow conservation-minded farmer, John co-founded River Partners in 1998, based on the premise that the fields of habitat restoration and agriculture could work together. River Partners implements large-scale restoration projects along streams and rivers throughout the western United States, including along the Colorado, Sacramento, San Joaquin, Merced, Otay, Tuolumne, Feather, and Stanislaus Rivers. In California alone, these riparian areas support some of the highest biodiversity of any ecosystem in California. John Carlin earned a Bachelor of Science in Agronomy and Horticulture from CSU Chico and a Master's of Science in International Agricultural Development from CSU San Luis Obispo. Welcome, John. Thank you. Great to be here. You're described somewhere as a social entrepreneur. And that you have been, of course, working in restoration and the protection of California's rivers and floodplains for almost 16 years. Tell us about your early background influences that brought you to this work and your appreciation of its importance. Um, My family, both my grandfathers were farmers. Uh, When I was a little kid, we lived um, along the coast on a little farm um, by Half Moon Bay. And so I just spent a lot of time uh, around animals and gardens and just being outside all the time when I was a kid. There was a lot of wild lands on the property that my folks owned. And um, so I just developed kind of a, you know, a a natural uh, appreciation for um, wildlife and wild areas and agriculture. And tell us about the path that led to the formation of River Partners. I saw this job advertisement um, with the Nature Conservancy to manage agricultural properties for conservation objectives. And so again, I was really interested in that. I was fortunate enough to get that job. And that was kind of what introduce me to um, restoration and conservation. Talk about the the important sort of shift in philosophy and approach when you started River Partners and how you married the two ideas, the conservation and the agricultural methods, if you will. Restoration is really a pretty young science. And certainly when I was involved in it, Um, At the very beginning, it was primarily ecologists and uh, landscape architects. And what happened, the Nature Conservancy had moved up onto the Sacramento River and recognized that they needed to really scale up Mm -hmm. uh, the reforestation and restoration efforts. And so um, what what I tried to do with that is, you know, we were going from an acre to 100 acres or 200 acres we kind of switched from landscape approaches to uh, employing agricultural practices. And so we adopted a lot of kind of standard um, farming techniques and methods. When you say that, give us a description of exactly what you're talking about. So in terms of agricultural practices and methods, we used 
agricultural tractors. So, you know, not landscape little tractors, but big tractors. We laid out rows instead of clusters of plants. Think about the difference between landscaping your front yard versus having a garden in the back with rows. We developed a planning design that would allow a lot of complexity um, in terms of the the species of native plants that were being placed and the configuration of that placement, distribution, density, and uh, diversity of those plants. Developed a process to implement that over a really large area Mm -hmm. uh, that did not require someone there placing each single plant that knew the you know that knew the design so those are some of the things that we implemented to try and scale up okay tell tell me about the irrigation describe what you did for that in the beginning one of the things about riparian restoration in floodplains is we're only actually cultivating the space for about 3 years so what we we try and utilize any existing irrigation systems that are in place. So we can use flood irrigation, furrow irrigation, or if neither one of those are functional, we will try drip irrigation. And so with drip irrigation, we actually had the drip manufacturer custom make a drip hose for us so that, again, we could do this over several hundred acres at a time. And this was quite a kind of a revolution in this restoration work, this idea of planting these large areas of native plants in these rows and then irrigating them for the first three years and then taking them off so that they were set up to succeed and then could be left to their natural life cycle. One of the really interesting parts of restoration for me is that Uh, We are working with a riparian system. That's the forest that grows along rivers and streams. And those forests are successional. So they start out as a community of willows and cottonwoods. And over the course of 100 years or 150 years, they evolve into an oak woodland or a savanna grassland. And they just change all, they, they change over that period of time. And what's happened in California with human disruption is that those forests can't start. Once they're taken out, once that land's been converted to agriculture, they won't come back on their own. And so it takes active intervention. And the active intervention is where the irrigation and weed control come in. And what we've learned is that if we plant these forests and take care of them for three years, then they're good to go for the next 100, 200 years and take off and do fine. But without that little bit of intervention, uh, they will not be able to regenerate. We went out for a day, you and I, and visited a couple of different sites, including one of the very first ones that you all worked on. Describe the kind of scope of projects you work on and um, the complexity of these, because it's impressive. Well, thanks. The, um, the history of, of, of our projects, really, when we started, uh, we were trying to figure out if we could get native plants to grow. And when I say native plants, I'm talking about riparian species like box elder, white alder, organ ash, sycamore, cottonwood, valley oak willows, 
and then several herbaceous species like blackberry rose, buttonbush, mule fat. So it's that suite of plants that we're working with. And there really wasn't a ton of information out there about how do they propagate, how, how do you plant them, what kind of irrigation do they need. So the early days were really all about can we get plants to grow. And then as we became successful with that, um, the next step really was will wildlife respond to the plants that we're growing. And if you think about rivers, they're really, um, they're really migration corridors. And uh, the ones that we work on in the Central Valley are some of the richest, biologically rich places in the world. So wildlife would come from as far away as the Arctic Circle or Argentina migrate to the Central Valley in California to the rivers to, um, to use those for part of their life cycle. So w here we are growing this forest and we, we see the plants growing and we think that's great, but are the wildlife responding to those plants? And it turns out that wildlife, like humans, are looking for really specific types of space, size, structure, distance to the water. And so it took us a long time to kind of learn what kind of configurations of different plants and different densities um, will really optimize the wildlife use. So that was kind of the second phase. And then the third phase is we got really as the as our projects got bigger and we went from 10 acres to 50 acres to 100 acres to 500 acres uh, because we are planting all these plants in designated floodways the flood control engineers really um, became um, concerned about our work and so the next phase of our projects we had to um, we had to develop projects that were flood neutral so that when floodwaters came down the channel, the vegetation we were planting weren't blocking the floodwaters. And that was a really interesting exercise to find the plants that would bend over during flood events and lay flat and actually allow the conveyance. So get the plants to grow, create wildlife habitat, and make it compatible with human needs. Um, and that's really been the challenge. And that's also one of the really interesting um, and gratifying aspects of this work is because then you really get to engage the community and not only have these forests work for, for wildlife, but also have them work for the human communities that are nearby. Right. This work that you're doing sits inside this much larger narrative of how we as humans have developed our land, developed our cities and our communities, and for a long time tried to control water that was flooding and endangering things that we had put in the wrong places to start with. And then we are coming as a, as a whole culture, I think, to a much better understanding of how we have kind of messed things up and how to try and restore them, which is why this restoration work is even necessary. So describe the land that you are generally being asked to restore and what you are restoring it from 
and and why why is it being given to you? Why do people want to take 500 acres and restore it? What is the objective? One of the things that's really important to remember in California, over 95% of the historical riparian forest is gone, and it's been converted to agriculture. It's been converted to housing and and homes and cities. And so there's just very little bit of this habitat left. And yet this habitat is hugely important for all these different wildlife species. So we're seeing a lot of these species just hanging on by their fingernails. They They are listed as threatened and endangered. They are on the verge of extinction. And people have recognized that they don't want to see salmon disappear from our rivers. They don't want to see least bells vireos never come back to the Central Valley. So state and federal agencies through the Endangered Species Act are saying these are really critical habitat that we have to protect. At the same time, on the economic side of the equation, land that was converted to agriculture back in the day when it was just we were planning kind of fence row to fence row, Uh, People have also recognized that this is really expensive property to farm because it floods every three or four years. And and basically, I should say, every property that we work on is flood-prone in the floodplain and ideally connected hydraulically to the river. So from our perspective, when I put my farmer's hat on, we're taking land that's marginally... um, profitable from an agricultural perspective and converting it to some of the richest, most productive wildlife habitat in the state. And so I think that's really a great trade-off. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with John Carlin, president of River Partners, a nonprofit corporation which he co-founded in 1998 with a mission to create wildlife habitat for the benefit of people and the environment. We'll be back after a break to hear more about this work, what River Partners has accomplished, and what they have learned with experience over time. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. This week, we're speaking with John Carlin, farmer and co-founder and president of River Partners. River Partners is a nonprofit corporation working throughout watersheds of the western United States to reclaim flood-prone agricultural land and return it to the healthy riverside successional forest it once was. This work at the same time benefits many aspects of the entire interdependent ecosystem. We're back after a break to hear more. There is a great case that you make that in doing this, in restoring this land, you make the entire agricultural land that's now pushed back just a little bit, uh, more productive and healthier. You make the water and water quality of the river and the floodplain healthier, and you benefit the environment as a whole, also creating healthy recreation area. A couple of the the projects that I guess we're the most excited about are ones that have multiple stakeholders and multiple objectives. And uh, the more we learn, the bigger that community becomes. Mm -hmm. And we have projects that have five or six different funders, state and federal agencies, projects that involve the local communities, projects that are 
achieving multiple objectives. So by allowing this land to flood and having it revegetated, floodwaters slow down a little bit and they sink in. And so that helps with groundwater recharge. It can also allow the flood protection system more space and it can allow it a little more time to drain and it can it can reduce flood flood damage. It creates amazing recreational opportunities for everything from hiking and fishing to bird watching. And you can have a, a water trail where you could canoe from one recreational area to the next. These projects are sequestering carbon. Again, we're, we're planting trees that it becomes a carbon sink. It's cleaning and recharging groundwater. We're retiring an incredible amount of groundwater. Again, these are old farms that we're taking out of irrigated agriculture. Uh, on one farm alone that we did in the San Joaquin, we are saving 7,000 acre feet of water per uh, year from that one farm alone that's getting permanently retired. And maybe to put this in perspective, for every 1,000 acres that we take out of production of irrigated agriculture, it provides enough water for a million Californians a year. I mean, it's a phenomenal wow. amount of water that's yeah. being being saved. There are also great outdoor laboratories for local schools. We have school kids come out, they plant trees. And then the other thing we've done over the last five or 10 years is we've basically hired the California Conservation Corps and they're doing the bulk of the manual labor which, again, provides uh, young people the opportunity. It provides them a job, and it also provides them an opportunity to get outdoors, learn some skills, and gain an appreciation for nature. So after 16 years of this kind of work, what do you find most exciting going forward? Well, the biggest lesson for me is the more I learn, the less I know about this. And we really are, as a culture um, and stewards, we're just just barely beginning to understand how all this stuff works. So the hope is that, you know, we can, we can save the pieces. We don't have species go extinct. We don't lose genetic material by our mismanagement. And then as we get better at this as a culture and a society and learn how to manage our rivers so they can be sustainable over time, then we have all those pieces in place still and and we don't lose them. And really, that's, I think, our little small contribution to this process is, is to try and preserve that. Talk about the some of the changes you've made in your planting planning. So originally, 16 years ago, you started with the idea of planting in straight rows and you focused pretty pretty solely on the keystone large tree species and some of the larger shrubs. How is that different in how you do this now? So when we started, the theory was if we could get the trees to grow, the, quote, understory would come in on its own. And um, the idea also was that by planting in straight rows, we could make this uh, – we could get a lot more conservation done for the dollars that were available. And what we've learned is that uh, the wildlife doesn't really care if the trees are in straight rows, but the neighboring communities 
um, don't want these wild areas to look like a farm. So we've been able to contour the rows and break up that visual line of sight for for our neighbors. And, and then we've really gone in and tried to cover every square inch of ground with a native plant. So we, we have the woody species, but we also put in a lot of herbaceous species and then grasses. And the grasses, what, what really part of the part of the objective here is when we leave after three years, there's really no maintenance. So we need to, to leave these sites in a state where they're resilient and they're resilient to floods, fires, pests, and invasion by non-native species. And what we've learned is by by trying to cover every um, square inch out there on the site with a native plant that we can really protect the integrity of that site over time. This sort of stream of learning and um, all of these different stakeholders that take part in some of these more complex restoration projects, it's almost like a metaphor for how connective our rivers and waterways are for us as whole regions. Um, you know, you look at just one of these rivers that you work along and it connects so many different people to say nothing of so many different bioregions across our state. Every single action that you are taking to restore this habitat must have just thousands of ripples out into the environment and the, you know, the ecosystem beyond it that you can't even anticipate, in fact. Talk a little bit about what you've been recently learning about how the salmon are directly benefited by this restoration work. Recently, we've just really started to focus on bringing fish up onto our projects. And initially, we, we monitor birds. They can fly in. Uh, there was the endangered elderberry beetle that colonized some of our sites. You know, we were able to look at that. Uh, there's other mammals like riparian brush rabbit that, that is coming back on some of our sites. But the thing about fish is, um, you know, they have to swim onto the project and it has to happen during a flood event. And so what we were su- kind of surprised to learn is that if you can get floodwaters up onto the floodplains, you slow it down, warm that water up a little bit with, with sunlight, you just get this explosion of plankton in that water, and then you get, an, following that, you get an explosion of zooplankton, and then it turns out these little tiny salmon fry that are finding their way, they will find their way on there. They just thrive off the zooplankton and will increase their weight 10 times in the matter of three or four weeks. And the, the term that people throw out is, fatties on the floodplain because (laughs) they're just out there just gorging themselves and growing and then they're just in this really solid position then to do their out migration Um, you know if you think about these little tiny fish that are like swimming down a river looking for predators everybody's trying to eat them then they go out into the San Francisco Bay there's bigger things trying to eat them and then they swim out in the ocean and so if they can be ten times bigger when they, when they start that journey, 
they're just they're just exponentially ahead and uh, in terms of their ability to survive. And without these native plant floodplain areas for them to do this growing on um, outside of the rush of the main river, uh, that just doesn't happen. Right, and so the the the. The main channel of the river is actually a pretty sterile place. It's gravel, and there's the occasional snag, which they call large woody debris, and that has some little aquatic insects on it. But other than that, it's a pretty sterile place. There's not a lot to eat. So they need to get up on the bank. There's a tiny bit of food that will fall in from the side, but again, the water is cold. Um, it doesn't really have the ability to get the plankton and the zooplankton going. And so just these really small little floodplain areas are just critically important to um, rearing salmonids. One last story before we finish. There is um, a bird. There's a bird story. There's a bird story. So one of the really great things that happened is um, on the, we have a project on the San Joaquin River National Wildlife Refuge. We restored about 3,000 acres on that refuge. And several years ago, um, we were monitoring birds, and um, the, the biologists who were looking for the birds found a Lease Bell's Vario nest. And that was the first time that bird had successfully fledged um, young in the Central Valley in 60 years. So that, that bird had been expatriated from the valley uh, and it, it actually found its way back and built a nest and, and reared its young in a tree we planted. So, What was that tree and what was the configuration around it? Because this gets to that specificity that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, so it turns out the Leesville Vario is looking for a two-year-old willow that's about a meter and a half high, and it needs to be um, surrounded by some native grass. So yeah, it's, it has really specific requirements for what it's looking for. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? I would just encourage everyone to get outside and enjoy our local rivers. They are an amazing resource to our community. I would encourage folks to look around their property, especially in agriculture. There's a lot of opportunities to kind of integrate uh, little areas of wildlands and wildlife corridors onto your farm. And I think you can even actually do that with cities. I mean, with your your property in town, and then certainly cities can coordinate and and put together little corridors along the, the waterways that go through town. And all those, again, all those little pieces put together actually add up and make a huge difference for wildlife. Thank you very much for joining us today, John. Thank you. John Carlin is president of River Partners, a nonprofit corporation whose mission is to create wildlife habitat for the benefit of people and the environment. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Hope you'll listen. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, 
please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.